morning text comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. This morning's message is the tenth and final message in the series on redemptive history that we began back on October 4th. And what I want to do this morning is try to gather it all together into one and show how Christmas or the incarnation is the climax and in a very real sense the end of that history that we've been looking at beginning with creation. The first thing that had to be said in the proclamation about God in redemptive history was that through the agency of the eternal Son and by the word of his command, God created all that is not God out of nothing. And he sustains or holds in existence the whole universe by the word of his power moment by moment. So that by creation and providence, God is the owner and the ruler of all things and therefore has an absolute right to do with creation exactly as he pleases. There's no higher court before whom we may appeal the decisions of God. There is no law in the universe other than the word of this God. There is no maker behind the maker of all. He is simply and awesomely absolute. Everybody, without exception, sooner or later, must have to do with this God and reckon with him. And there are only two possibilities. Either we can rebel against his absolute authority over us, resist it, or we can bow humbly before him in adoration and do his bidding. The second thing that had to be declared is that our first human parents chose the former. They fell prey to a deception and rebelled against God. And the deception to which they fell was simply, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God and happier. Which meant 
If you stop depending on God to tell you what's good for you and what's harmful for you, what's evil and what's right, and make those choices for yourself, be a little bit more self-reliant, then you'll be like God and you'll be happier. And they fell for it and they fell. And the fall very basically means the rise of the desire and the effort to be self-determining and self-reliant. And as a result, God withdrew from mankind his sanctifying grace in such a way that every person that comes into the world after Adam and Eve comes with a bent towards rebellion and towards unbelief. The essence of sin that presses for control in every one of our lives is the intense distaste to submit ourselves to the absolute authority of God and rely like little children on Him. We don't like it, and people resist it with all their might in many various forms. So, the early history of mankind stood under this sentence from Genesis 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth, and that every inclination of the thought of their hearts was only evil, continually. Genesis 6, 5. But the third thing that had to be proclaimed in the history of redemption was that God's purpose to be glorified in redemptive history through an obedient and joyful people of his own was not to be frustrated. And therefore, he reached down and chose one man, Abraham, and began something that has not yet ceased to this day. He made him a promise. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And by you, all the nations... All the families of the earth will be blessed. We've got to learn from redemptive history that it's God's way to achieve great ends through very small beginnings. Isn't it one of the most captivating things about Christmas that the cosmic business of Jesus Christ began with a babe in a manger? That fascinates us, doesn't it? That's the way God is. He always seems to act that way, lest any man should boast and give the glory to man rather than to God. God aims to redeem the whole creation and make a people who are not rebellious anymore, but who are full of joy and faith. And he begins this grand plan of redemption with this imperfect solitary, wandering Aramean whose wife is barren. And then, from that man and woman, he makes a great nation, Israel, named after Abraham's grandson, who is the father of the twelve tribal patriarchs. And God begins to go to work now on this people and to make this people into a lesson book for all the nations of the world to read and to understand how salvation is coming. Then after centuries of bondage in Egypt, God extends his hand and with an unbridled display of glory exerts his power for deliverance at the Red Sea. Fear not, 
Stand firm and see the salvation that the Lord will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Rather, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be still. You know, with just a few changes in the wording, that's exactly what the angels said Christmas night, wasn't it? Fear not, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the peoples. For to you this day, born in the city of David, a Savior, a Deliverer, a Red Sea Splitter. And all you need to do is trust Him. And that's no mere coincidence between the word of the people at the Red Sea and the word of the angels. Because everything that God was doing in Israel was pointing forward to the Messiah who was to come, and to the righteousness of faith that can be had through him. Let me give you some examples of how they pointed forward. When they came to Mount Sinai and the law was given, the basic reason was to simply show how people who have faith in the God of the Exodus will act. That's all the law was, is to demonstrate what the obedience of faith looked like. The law did not demand that people try to earn their way into God's favor through works. What it did was say, depend wholly on his mercy and bear the fruits of repentance. It called for the obedience of faith and it provided atonement for sin. It didn't demand that you had to be perfect in order to be saved any more than the gospel demands perfection. Otherwise, there would have been no need for all those sacrificial lambs by which forgiveness was mediated. And all of those things, the call for faith and the sacrificial system were pointing forward to the day when there would be a redeemer who would come and whose death would fulfill all those sacrifices and end them and would be believed on and received by faith alone. Then they wandered in the wilderness and God showed them that there he could spread a table for them when there was no food at all and that therefore they should trust him to meet all their needs. The manna he provided was like a foreshadowing of the bread that comes down from heaven from God, Jesus Christ, the bread of the world. And remember the time that they set up the serpent on that post when the people had rebelled so that if they looked at it, they could be healed and John says that's a prefiguring of the day that Christ would be hung on the cross so that we could look to him and be saved. And all their testings in the wilderness pointed forward to the day when the Messiah would be tested in the wilderness yet without sin. And then when they crossed the Jordan into the promised land and enjoyed rest from all the nations, it was a partial fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. But those sensitive readers of the Old Testament, like the writer to the Hebrews, they saw this is an imperfect rest. And since it's an imperfect rest, it must be pointing beyond a kind of type of a rest that is yet to come when the one who offers rest for our souls comes. A better country, a city whose builder and maker is God, a Sabbath rest for the people of the Savior in his kingdom. And then the monarchy was established, to be sure, through awfully evil motives. But God, in his sovereign grace, turns it for good 
and promises that through this line, the Messiah is going to come who will redeem all the evil that brought that very kingdom into existence. All the history of Israel, from Abraham right on, is a great lesson book for the nations, a great pointer forward. The lesson in a word that it wants to teach is this. God the Creator owns and rules all things. And He aims to subdue the rebellion of creation and be glorified in an obedient and joyful people who forsake self-reliance and trust in Him like little children. They can't earn His favor through works of the law They can only trust in him for righteousness. And someday he was to bring them a righteous branch for David, whose name would be the Lord is our righteousness. Now, the next thing that God did in redemptive history took everybody off guard. Only a few people who were most sensitive to the heart of the Old Testament could begin to fathom what God did next. What he did was split the coming of the Messiah into two comings with 2,000 years in between. Unimaginable for any Jew in the first century. Unheard of. It was incomprehensible for the Jews of Jesus' day what God did at Christmas time. The Old Testament prophets had not been told by God how all the things they were predicting fit together in time. 1 Peter 1.10 says this, The prophets who prophesied concerning the grace that is coming to you sought out And searched out about this salvation, searching into which or what sort of time the Spirit of Christ was revealing in them as they testified beforehand concerning the sufferings of Christ and the glories after them. In other words, some prophets foresaw that there would be sufferings in the Messiah. That was unspeakable enough. And that there would be a revelation in glory, but what they weren't shown is how it fit together. Would it happen at the same time? Would one come before the other? Would they be separated in time? It's not there in the prophetic books because God chose not to reveal it to them. And what happens then in the New Testament is that God splits this expectation into two days. The first coming for the Messiah to suffer and die The second coming for him to gather his redeemed people from all over the world into his kingdom and reign forever and ever. The Jews had expected one great day of the Lord. And the Old Testament gave rise to that expectation. The day would be the coming of the Messiah, the defeat of his enemies, the establishment of the kingdom, the sanctification of the people, the ruling for eternity in righteousness and peace. But... That isn't the way God did it. It was supposed to mean the end of this age and the beginning of the kingdom of God. It's no wonder then that when 
the disciples finally broke through to the ability to say, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus responded, yes, and the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, that they were utterly speechless. They could not fathom it. They were even afraid to ask him a question about it. How can you defeat your enemies? How can you establish the kingdom of God? How can you fulfill the promises if you're rejected by the people of God and killed like a common criminal? It's just unimaginable. It took them three years of instruction, many resurrection appearances, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit before the apostles finally could grasp that it was precisely through being rejected by the people and dying on the cross that they could or that God could defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom and fulfill the promises. The meaning of Christmas was a total blur for some 30 years until the apostles broke through to the insight that, oh, this is the the first half of the final act of redemption and the second half will only come later. And when they finally saw that, God counted them prepared to interpret Christmas for us. And that's what they did in the New Testament, interpreting the incarnation in view of the second coming. Now, everything they wrote in their interpretation of the incarnation has a trademark about it. A very unusual trademark that stamps it as apostolic. The words of the apostles. The trademark is that even though the apostles looked forward to the second appearance of the coming of the Messiah, they nevertheless called the first appearing of the Messiah the end of the ages. History ended at Christmas. That's the trademark of the apostles. They do not treat Christmas as just another bend in the river of redemptive history. With Christmas comes the end. Let me show you some examples of where this trademark is found. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, the Apostle Paul says that all the events of the Old Testament happened to them as a warning, but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. That's Paul speaking 2,000 years ago. The end of the ages has fallen upon us. The Apostle Peter, do you remember what he said when he stood up on Pentecost to interpret what was happening in the fall of the Holy Spirit? He said, quoting Joel, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days. It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit. Those were the last days. Again, the Apostle Peter in his first letter wrote in the text that was read earlier in chapter 1, verse 20, that Christ was destined before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end of the times for our sake. 
manifest at the end of the times. The appearing of Jesus at Christmas marked the end of the times, or as Paul called it, the end of the ages. One other text from Hebrews 9.26, which is especially important because here the two comings of the Messiah are held side by side, and still the first one is called the end. Hebrews 9.26, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment, so Christ, having having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for. For him. Now, what this text shows is that even though time had elapsed between Christmas and the writing of Hebrews, and he looked forward to another uncertain elapse of time till that second appearing, nevertheless, he still looked back and said that first coming was the end of the age. That's the trademark of the apostles. That's the way they thought about Christmas. And I think the Holy Spirit preserves that trademark for us because there is a tremendously important truth in it, namely, don't trivialize Christmas into just another great event in the stream of redemptive history. Creation out of nothing was an awesome event. I try to imagine what the angels thought when matter the universe flashed into existence at the word of God. I never had imagined such a thing. And there it was. The fall was an awful event that shook creation. The exodus was an amazing display of power and love. The giving of the law, the wandering in the wilderness, the conquest of Canaan, the rise of the monarchy, the prophetic word, great demonstrations of the power of God along the river of redemptive history. But don't align Christmas on the same continuum with those great events. We trivialize the incarnation if we make it just another stage along the way to the end. It is the end of redemptive history. And I think the analogy of the river helps us see how. Picture this for me. If if you're familiar with the Mississippi River all the way to the Gulf, put the Mississippi in your mind. If you want to use another river, do that. Picture redemptive history now flowing from creation right on through as a river. And picture the ocean into which it is flowing as the final kingdom of God, eternal, glorious beyond all description. At the mouth of this river, at the end of the river, the ocean presses back with its salt water a ways up into the river. I've always wondered what kind of fish live in this no man's land where the fresh water and the salt water are mingling, where the river meets the ocean. Therefore, at the mouth of the river, there's a mingling of fresh water and salt water, and one might say that the kingdom has has pressed its way back up into the stream 
of history a short way. It has surprised the travelers on that river very, very much. They can taste it if they put their dipper down into the water. They can smell it. They can see the seagulls circling the deck. The end has come upon them, even though they're still on the river. Christmas is not just another bend in that river. Christmas is the arrival of the salt water of the kingdom back up into the river for a ways. And that salt water is beckoning us, welcoming us, alluring us on out into the deep. Christmas is not just another great bend in the river. It is the end of the river. Let down your dipper. Taste Jesus Christ. Taste his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. Has not the age to come fallen upon us? Has not the kingdom arrived? Do you not taste the powers of the age to come? I think those who can taste it lift up their eyes and they see a big blue bow on the horizon between sky and ocean. And they are hankering and longing to go on out of the delta and the mouth of the river into the ocean. Now, scoffers say, they have always said, yeah, 2,000 years is a long river delta. Too long to believe in, in fact. Christmas was just another turn in redemptive history, if that. The taste in the water must have been some factory dumping its chemicals into the river. Who can imagine 2,000 years of last days? Who can imagine 2,000 years of a river delta? My answer to the skeptics is the words of the Apostle Peter in his second letter where he said, Do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. As far as God is concerned, the incarnation happened last Friday. That's not very long ago. That's not a very long river delta. Let me make one last effort to help you see Christmas this way, namely, as something very near, and the end of history. Most of you probably know somebody 90 years old or older. We have 11 members who are 90 years old or older. Nine of them are women. They live longer. Now I want you to imagine 22 of these ladies on the bottom step of this, uh, these risers. And the first one over there, and they're side by side standing there facing you. I think we could fit 22 we put them real close together and they're facing you okay they're alert they can remember their childhood they can remember their middle life they remember their old age and now imagine them all turning facing that way back to back forming a cue and instead of thinking of them as contemporaries think of the one who is behind the person in front as living before the one in front. 
so that they lived after each other. If the lady right there was alive today, do you know when she would have been born? The same time Jesus was. There are only 22 ladies between you and the incarnation. And that's not a long river delta. I want us to, this Christmas, instead of telling the stories long, long, long time ago in a little manger in Bethlehem, I want us to see ourselves positioned square between the first coming and the second coming, which are very near and together make the end of history in which we live. I want us to see these two appearances of the Messiah united by the the overflow of the ocean of the kingdom into the river of our present. The salt water swirling all around us, letting us know that those seagulls overhead means the ocean is right there before us. And I want us to feel in our hearts the undertow of the eschaton, pulling us, drawing us out into the deeps. I want us this Christmas to desire to be with the Lord. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, albeit very feebly, We have celebrated in these weeks together your footsteps in creation, the fall, the election of Abraham, the exodus, the giving of the law, the wandering in the wilderness, the conquering of Canaan, the rise of the monarchy, the prophetic word, and the end, the incarnation. What a panorama of power. And glory you have given in history for our meditation, reflection, and adoration. Forgive us, I pray, for the inadequacies of the proclamation of your exquisite power and glory. And grant that what we have seen this Christmas move us to love you very, very deeply. With all our heart and all our soul and all our mind, and all our strength. And may we be filled with joy in you, through Jesus Christ we pray.